0: My name is Mailing Bernie, and I am a lecturer in the Department of International Development. And today, I'm really pleased that we have a guest who has flown in from overseas, Kelly Tai, um, who's here to present some work from a new book that she's working on, comparing China and India, and particularly the development diasporas. Um, and what's um, what's really exciting about this work is that it's moving out of um, just a single country study into studying two countries in a way that is two countries that are of major interest to the world today in a way that is um, astonishingly useful. There's a tendency to want to compare big important countries, but not always to be able to find an angle to provide an angle to provide some useful information on them. So you'll end up comparing apples and oranges. And in this case I think she's chosen a, a topic in which it is incredibly useful to study the thing that she's focused on, developmental diasporas, from these two countries which of course have similarities but also have major differences. Um, And the other reason that I'm so pleased to have her besides that she is uh, presenting such wonderful and cutting edge work right now, is because I know her past work and her past work is phenomenal. I remember, I also work on China and I remember that I was in Beijing talking with a journalist who's one of the top journalists um, in China um, Western journalists covering China and he mentioned Kelly's past book um, Capitalism Without Democracy The Private Sector in Contemporary China as a model of what academics should be producing the type of work that academics could produce that's of interest to people who aren't academics and incredibly useful to journalists, to policymakers, and a broad interest to the public and also extremely readable. You can pick up the book you don't have to be an academic and you can enjoy it and you can understand it And I thought I completely could see where he was coming from. But the nice thing was that I had something different to say about her book, which was that I use her book as a model of academic work. That when somebody comes up to me and they're like, what, especially a graduate student, and they're like, well, what should I be expected to produce in my PhD? And what type of work should I be doing? I'll say, well, you won't do something this ambitious for your PhD. But if you want to see a model of extraordinary academic work, take a look at this book. This is the type of thing you should be aspiring to do. So the type of work she produces is stuff that is a model as academic work, but it's also a model as work that's of interest to the broader public, interest to the policy work world, interest to um, people who are, just, who are experts um, in what is going on and the issues that she's studying. So we're very lucky to have her here today. Kelly Sai.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mayling, for that uh, incredibly generous introduction. I feel pressured (laughs) to live up to (laughs) those words now, and I'd like to uh, thank uh, Stefan for inviting me. I think the initial invitation was two years ago, and we just couldn't quite get the scheduling, so I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I've been a Long-standing admirer of the London School of Economics, and um, and it's just it's just, it's very special for me to actually have the opportunity to address you. Um, I'm and I'd like to thank you for attending the talk as well. I'm going to leave plenty of time for discussion because, as Mayling mentioned, um, this is a book project in progress. So I'm hoping to learn from you, from your questions and your comments. Okay. So my current project is motivated by the fact that. Um, China and India have become the world's leading destinations of foreign direct investment, FDI, and, but also the world's leading recipients of international migrant remittances. China's been the top recipient of FDI among developing countries every single year since 1992 and the leading destination uh, for FDI in the world since 2002. Meanwhile, India is the world's largest recipient of remittances, and these two countries lend themselves well to dyadic uh, comparison on many different levels. Both are large developing countries that are heavily populated. Uh, Their current regimes were established in the late 1940s. They also share several decades of heavy state intervention in the economy and relative autarky, followed by market-oriented reforms and liberalizing trade and investment policies. Despite these similarities, observers comparing the two economies tend to be obsessed with the massive disparity in their FDI inflows. Over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, China received about 16 times more FDI than India. Now, Even though India has attracted much more FDI in recent years, there's — and it's actually now second only to China in terms of FDI uh, recipient uh, receipts — there's still a very large gap in their cumulative fdi inflow since 1991 so since 1991 um, china's received um, over a trillion dollars in fdi versus uh, india's 252 billion now because of this gap let's see if this works what do i point this at that or that (laughs) oh that one okay thank you oh that was the laser i'm sorry if i blinded anyone with this Okay, because, so because of this gap um, there's, uh, in their FDI inflows, there's this huge and growing industry of popular commentary, policy briefs, and academic studies that are seeking to explain India's apparently laggard performance in FDI compared to China. And most of these observers seem to share the neoliberal assumption that FDI brings a host of economic benefits, and, and therefore India is falling very far behind China in an apparent global competition for capital. FDI has basically become shorthand for economic relevance and prestige in a globalized world. But from a development perspective, international remittances, international migrant remittances, are actually a much more critical source of external finance for developing countries than FDI. In 2001, remittances to developing countries were double the volume of official aid and 10 times the level of net transfers from private sources. And in cumulative terms, India has actually received $151 billion more external finance in the form of remittances than FDI since 1991. And this suggests that focusing exclusively on FDI as a comparative measure of capital inflows obscures another significant source of funds, remittances from abroad. Ultimately, I'm trying to develop an analytic case for broadening the universe of what political scientists typically regard as the main sources of finance for developing countries, or what I call conventional capital. So, as you know, the development state literature really dominated political economy of development um, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And this just grew out of Alexander Gerschenkron's depiction of the state as an investment banker in late industrializing countries or, or entrepreneur. So the state had, had to mobilize finance to invest in industry to enable developing countries to catch up uh, with others. Um, the second dominant approach to explaining development um, grew out of the rise of neoliberal ideology in the late, well, In the 1980s and 1990s um, that emphasized the value of openness to foreign direct investment and multinational investment and then finally more traditional um, development aid uh, approaches have focused on the relevance of multilateral and bilateral sources of aid from national governments so this project is arguing that we need to amend existing popular explanations in the political economy development literature to incorporate ethnic capital and the diasporic dimensions of informal finance in a much more central rather than residual manner. And this theoretical recommendation is based on certain empirical facts. Today I'm going to talk about why it's really important to disaggregate FDI data and also include remittances from diasporic communities if we really want to understand the sources that are available to the two largest developing countries in the world, China and India. And while, while determining the actual determinants, identifying the determinants of FDI inflows tends to dominate most of the literature on FDI, um, and most of this is based on econometric analyses, I propose that the very concept of FDI may not be the most meaningful de- Uh, indicator of relative developmental performance, especially given the reality of national definitional differences in FDI, um, the reality of round-trip capital, and variation in the sources and uses of FDI. In some cases, foreign direct investment is not actually as foreign as it appears in official accounts and as a retired generation of dependency theorists once observed. In other cases, foreign capital distorts rather than promotes national economic goals. Given that global remittance levels have outstripped official development assistance, or what's called ODA, since the late 1990s, that's a key reason why it's necessary to include remittances as a variable in explaining economic development. But as with FDI, remittances also comprise a diversity of sources and uses. Remittances aren't necessarily more desirable than other forms of capital. Ultimately, only very detailed, on-the-ground empirical research can elucidate the local developmental implications of FDI and remittances. As such, my project is considering the following questions. First, what motivates the respective diasporas to send money back to their homelands in the form of FDI versus remittances? Uh, Second, what are the local developmental implications of these diasporic flows? And how do the respective national governments interpret and frame the respective flows? In reviewing the reasons for large differences in FDI inflows to China and India, um, one of the striking points of variation is the large proportion of China's FDI coming from domestic and overseas Chinese sources. Now, building on the theme of ethnic capital, the second part of um, my talk compares remittance trends in the two countries – And then the third section outlines the developmental implications of remittances. And the conclusion proposes that attending to transnational ethnic networks in economic development presents an analytic opportunity to generate more empirically accurate and nuanced theories of political economy. Okay, so what explains the great divergence in China and India's FDI levels? Well, during the two decades between 1991 and uh, 2011, India's cumulative volume of realized FDI was only about one-fifth of China's inflows. And existing explanations for this divergence generally emphasize either the respective countries' policy and business environment uh, or the compositional differences in their FDI inflows. So in terms of the two countries' investment environment, most of the various rankings of international business environments consistently rank India below China in in most dimensions. In the World Bank's annual doing business report in 2012, out of 183 economies that the World Bank ranked, China was ranked 91 and India was ranked 132. This is out of 183. The third column in the table shows the difference between the two countries in each issue area, and you'll see that India is ranked lower in all but two dimensions of doing business, uh, getting credit and protecting investors. Uh, those, those are the areas uh, shaded in orange where um, India ranks higher than China. But China's relative advantage in all the other areas actually isn't that much greater except in uh, the category enforcing contracts, where India is ranked 182 out of 183 economies. That's that's not good, right? Okay, Um, And China is ranked surprisingly high at 16. Now, while doing business rankings target operational challenges that investors may face, uh, the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Index aims to measure the institutions, the policies, and factors that determine the level of productivity in a country. A comparison of the rankings uh, for the two countries in the third column shows that India ranks marginally higher than China in half of the specific indicators. The major area in which China lags significantly behind India in the competitiveness index is, not surprisingly, financial market sophistication, where India ranks 34 out of 134 countries, and China is in the lowest quartile at 109. But India is ranked substantially lower uh, than China, primarily in the basic, uh, the basic requirements categories. You see their infrastructure, macroeconomic policy, health, and primary education. Anyway, these surveys basically show that most investors perceive. These are, these are measures of perceptions, right? Um, most investors perceive China as having a considerably more favorable climate than India for their commercial objectives. While contextual factors clearly do uh, inform the calculus of foreign investors, I think it's important to note that official FDI statistics are not directly comparable over time and actually exaggerate the gap between China and India. One basic reason for the extreme difference in FDI levels between the two countries is because they haven't always measured FDI in the same way. They're not talking about the same things um, consistently over time. So the IMF, Defines FDI as including over a dozen components, including equity capital, reinvested earnings, uh, foreign companies, loans, foreign leasing, uh, financial leasing, excuse me, trade credits, etc. But until <coughs> mid 2003, India's FDI statistics only included cash equity investments, which means that India's FDI figures were vastly underestimated relative to China and other countries that were using the standard definition of FDI. In mid-2003, India did realign its definition of FDI, but even with the definitional adjustment, India's FDI volume was still about one-tenth of China's uh, during 2000 to 2001. A a second source of incomparability in FDI statistics is the fact that about one-third of China's FDI is actually round-trip capital, meaning capital that exits the country... Uh, goes for a little suntan in the Cayman Islands or Hong Kong and reappears in the guise of foreign direct investment. So round-trip capital shows up in the errors and omissions lines in the national balance of payments and is closely correlated with China's FDI inflows from Hong Kong and other tax-free havens. Economists also estimate round-trip capital by calculating the difference between PRC, meaning China's reported FDI inflows, and the amount of FDI going to China that's reported um, by the investing economies. So that difference um, is is uh, is one is one way of getting at FD uh, at round trip capital. Now round trip capital typically takes one of three forms. First, uh, domestic firms that want to appear foreign invested may incorporate a business in Hong Kong or elsewhere and then set up a bank account abroad. Oh, whoops, transfer price. Um, Second, the the second let's see, did I get that? Okay. Yeah, I got that. Um, second, um, the, the domestic – so in the first uh, – uh, where the uh, domestic firm kind of sets up a, a business in Hong Kong, what happens is the domestic firm transfers funds into an offshore bank account, and then the offshore business invests, you know, invests at least 20 percent of the domestic firm's equity to qualify for foreign-invested enterprise status. And these types of firms are called fake – FIEs are fake um, foreign invested enterprises, and they're motivated by the preferential treatment that are granted to foreign businesses in China. So until a couple of years ago, foreign invested enterprises were taxed at a rate of 15%, while domestic private enterprises were taxed at 33%, even though the tax rate has since been unified at 25% across the board. There's still non fiscal, non tax reasons, um, incentives for Registering fake FIEs because local officials in China are rewarded for attracting FDI, even if it's fake. Um, it's, it was actually—it's been quite easy doing research on fake foreign invested enterprises. I just go to a locality, say I'm, I'd like to interview some fake foreign invested enterprises. They lead me to them. I mean, everyone's pretty open about the fact that they—the fact that they exist—and um, uh, foreign invested enterprises also enjoy other privileges like better access to land. Um, Second, round-trip capital also occurs through what's called transfer pricing, such that a domestic business can undervalue its imports and then overvalue its exports on invoices, which then enables it to transfer funds in from abroad. Okay, yeah, so that was the fake foreign-invested enterprise. I forgot to click. There we go. Um, So this uh, transfer pricing technique enables domestic firms to report cash receipts from non-Chinese entities in the guise of foreign direct investment and enjoy the concessionary treatment that's accorded to uh, foreign-invested enterprises. Third, Chinese firms that are trying to raise capital from international equity markets may establish offshore uh, shell companies to undertake an initial public offering. Um, China's stock markets are overwhelmingly dominated by state-owned enterprises, and the IPO process is extremely complicated and time-intensive. So private businesses that are otherwise in a position to go public find it much more efficient to list abroad. And they usually do this by turning to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to launch their IPOs as so-called red-chip companies, uh, which is reflected in the substantial expansion of Hong Kong's outward FDI towards China. Um, FDI from China I mean, FDI from Hong Kong to China was about 41 percent of total outward FDI, uh, Hong Kong's total out- outward FDI in 1998. But by 2002, 91 um, percent of Hong Kong's outward FDI was uh, going to China. Um, Now, turning to the case of India, FDI from Mauritius is somewhat comparable to that of FDI going from Hong Kong to China uh, because Mauritius has low tax rates and an agreement with uh, India on avoidance of double taxation. Uh, Mauritius attracts investors who establish shell companies. So Mauritius has been the largest source of India's Uh, FDI inflows since 1995 and the proportion of FDI from Mauritius has continued to grow since then. Uh, During the decade of 1991 to 2000, FDI from Mauritius represented uh, about 31.5% of India's total FDI flows but then it increased to 38.8% during 2001 to 2004 and it reached nearly 50% of total inflows by um, 2005 to 2009. So Of this amount, approximately 10 to 14 percent of FDI from Mauritius and other tax-free havens is estimated to be round-tripping by Indian companies or foreign investors who are based in India, though the Reserve Bank of India itself um, estimates that round-tripping through Mauritius accounts for only 2 to 3 percent of India's total FDI. So I'm still trying to figure out. What? <laughs> well, what a more accurate measure is um, businesses in India have they do have uniform rates of taxation regardless of ownership type and also local officials are not explicitly rewarded for attracting FDI the way that they are in China so two of the key motivations for creating fake foreign invested enterprises in China aren't present in India In any case, once China's FDI figures are adjusted downward by one-third to account for round-trip capital, the disparity in China and India's uh, FDI figures becomes less dramatic. Now, this slide here is really a footnote, but it's an important footnote. Portfolio investment is also a route for round-trip capital. India receives a lot of portfolio investment, meaning investment in domestic equity and bond markets by foreign institutional investors, such as mutual funds, pension funds, asset management companies, insurance companies, etc. Um, in the mid-1990s and also early 2000s, there were a number of years when portfolio investment uh, outstripped foreign direct investment in India. But you'll see here that in the last two years, portfolio investment has been at roughly half the level of um, FDI, which is to say that it's still quite substantial. Also, even though China still receives more portfolio investment than India, um, including portfolio investment does provide a more complete accounting of capital inflows. The relative contribution of FDI by the Chinese versus Indian diaspora represents a third major source of variation in the composition of China and India's FDI inflows. While the Indian diaspora has accounted for, on average, less than 14 percent of India's total FDI, um, China's FDI has been dominated by investment from ethnic Chinese in neighboring economies. Throughout the 1990s, about two-thirds of China's cumulative FDI originated from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau, and Singapore. Uh, Until 1996, Hong Kong alone accounted for over half of China's total FDI. And then the next largest source was Taiwan, and um, investment from the Virgin Islands started to be documented and expanded (coughs) in the mid-1990s. Even though FDI from uh, Japan, Europe, and North America increased in relative terms during the 2000s, as of last year, flows from the four Chinese economies still accounted for over half of China's FDI, and Hong Kong and the Virgin Islands remain the largest sources of FDI for China. Now having said that, <laughs> this is a big caveat because Hong Kong's FDI statistics require very careful interpretation. Uh, in addition to serving as a conduit for round-trip capital from the mainland, Hong Kong also functions as a, has functioned as a bridge for Taiwanese investors because the Taiwan government um, restricted its citizens from investing directly in China. So if one triangulates among uh, FDI statistics among Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Virgin Islands, and China, and you, and you do have to look at the, um, the stats for all all those areas. Um, You see that starting in the mid-1990s, the decline in Taiwanese FDI to Hong Kong, and in turn, the relative decline in Hong Kong's FDI to China, then reappeared in the form of growth. Um, in FDI from Taiwan to the Virgin Islands. I mean, it's almost exactly the same amount. And this, so, so the this shifting of Taiwanese investment channeled through Hong Kong to various offshore islands instead was because they were worried about Hong Kong's future after 1997. Now, since then, circumstances have changed and, you know, um, Taiwan um, mainland relations have warmed. But that, when you look at the statistics, that's, that's showing a lot of um, underlying political tension during those years. Okay, so what accounts for the large proportion of FDI from ethnic Chinese investors? First, there we go. Um, Official government policies towards expatriate investors have affected the variation in ethnic FDI. Uh, During the Cultural Revolution, China was closed to such investment. Beijing then reversed this position with the opening of its economy in the late 1970s, uh, and various official organizations and policies were enacted explicitly to attract and encourage investment from overseas Chinese. And part of this shift in strategy was politically motivated because China competes with Taiwan for the allegiance of overseas Chinese. In contrast, until recently, oops, I'm not sure if I was supposed to do that yet. Anyway, we'll get to it. In contrast, until recently, India's treatment of um, investment from non-resident Indians NRIs is what they're called, has been far less strategic or targeted than China. And the barriers that NRIs, non-resident Indians, have faced in their investment attempts are actually similar to those that are faced by non-ethnic investors, including restrictions on investment in various sectors, bureaucratic complexity and delays, and corruption. Uh, for example, during the early 2000s, just e- obtaining an export license still required up to 250 signatures um, in India. I mean, things have gotten better uh, for an NRI investment in the 2000s, but it still is not at quite as welcoming as China's approach to its diaspora. Okay, that's what I wanted here. A second category of explanations focuses on the cultural advantages that overseas Chinese ethnic networks have in conducting business both within and outside of China due to linguistic, cultural, and geographical affinities. And it's not just a matter um, of knowing who, how, and... uh, um, Uh, when to bribe. Uh, Shared norms and social networks enable overseas Chinese investors to overcome various informational and operational challenges. Now, while one might expect um, the benefits of ethnic networks to extend to Indian investors, the composition and distribution um, of the two diasporic populations very much mediates their contribution to Homeland FDI. But Studies of the Indian diaspora indicate that they're much more active to be in non-commercial professions such as education, health services, and engineering, which may account for why NRIs are more likely to make bank deposits in India rather than formal investment. Third, the geographic distribution of their respective diasporas also vary. Um, India's diaspora of over 25 million people is distributed across about 130 countries. Um, with 11 countries where the Indian population exceeds 1 million. In contrast, the 55 million overseas Chinese are distributed across 135 countries, but 50 million live immediately within the Asian region alone. So the concentration and proximity of the Chinese diaspora to the mainland has also facilitated the development of ethnic business networks. Relatedly, a fourth reason for the higher level of overseas um, Chinese FDI is the emergence of regional production chains in East Asia, Uh, following the establishment of China's uh, uh, special economic zones in the early 1980s. Many people observed the formation of these discrete regional political economies, um, consisting of um, Fujian, Taiwan, and then uh, Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, and Shenzhen within a greater South China regional economy. Barry Naughton referred to this increasing economic integration of these areas as the China circle. And a developmental implication of these emerging regional economies is the shifting of labor-intensive manufacturing operations from Hong Kong to Taiwan um, and and Taiwan to uh, China's coastal south, though now that's moving uh, into Southeast Asia as well. But in any case, once again, direct parallels with India are absent in the area of regional economic integration. I mean, think about who are India's immediate neighbors. Um, There's no India's circle of manufacturing production chains within South Asia that are fueled by ethnic business networks. Instead, the bulk of India's FDI derives from multinational corporations based in advanced industrialized countries. Um, Furthermore, while China's ethnic uh, Chinese-dominant FDI is concentrated in manufacturing, over um, 70% of FDI uh, is manufacturing in China um, and then real estate, 15%. Um, India's more global, uh, less ethnic FDI is increasingly shifting towards the service sector, which attracted over 30% of its total FDI in the 1990s. But... It would be inaccurate, however, to conclude that the Indian diaspora lacks manufacturing and commercial networks um, because clearly they do exist. Uh, The the diaspora community in Silicon Valley has clearly contributed to India's rise as the leading destination of global outsourcing in the IT sector. Uh, Huang Yasheng has argued that India's indigenous capacity for innovation puts it at a competitive advantage relative to China's FDI-reliant growth strategy that's based more on (coughs) low-end export processing um, I happen to disagree with this particular interpretation, and would uh, would actually side more. This is, this is a long footnote. Would side more with like Doug Fuller's work on the same uh, topic. Uh, another successful example of strong Indian diasporic networks is in the diamond industry. Uh, India's Indian entrepreneurs in South Africa, Amsterdam, and New York constitute this extensive transnational network of diamond cutters and retailers, which has made Surat and Gujarat the global center for diamond cutting and polishing. Um, Surat now processes 92 percent of the world's diamonds and accounts for 14 percent of India's total exports. Now, while the investment community and most political economists focus on FDI, in recent years, development practitioners have been emphasizing the importance of remittances as a source of external finance for developing countries. Uh, Remittances, as I mentioned earlier, remittances to developing countries are more than twice the volume of official aid and almost two-thirds that of FDI flows. So in this sense, China's record of attracting far more FDI than remittances – is is the exception for a developing country, rather than the rule. And and India's experience is a bit more typical of uh, developing countries. Combining FDI plus remittances for the two countries shows that even though India's inflows is only 35 percent — there we go — of China's FDI and remittances, the gap is much smaller than when you look only at FDI as a metric of capital inflows. Uh, now, I just want to quickly review how migration patterns have contributed to trends in remittances in the two countries. There's an enormous literature on Chinese and Indian migration. So what I'm going to pre- present is just a very broad summary, um, a really broad summary. So we've got early commercial settlements <laughs> of Chinese in Southeast Asia. Uh, Then there was a ban on private trade with foreign uh, countries for a couple of centuries. Um, And then, I mean, I said really broad summary, right? (laughs) And then in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, over 2 million Chinese worked abroad as contract laborers on plantations, mines, and railroads. And during this period, Hong Kong became a hub for diasporic networks that brokered the Chinese labor in the Americas, Australia, and Southeast Asia. And the financing of Chinese migration in the late 19th century and early 20th century was an integral component of the rise of overseas Chinese remittances as professional labor recruiters would front the cost of transportation and then migrants would repay them through the remittance agencies. It's pretty well established in the literature that the large volumes of remittances during this period reversed China's negative balance of payments position and contributed to financing the major political upheavals of the time, including the revolution of 1911 and the anti-Japanese war. In the late 1940s, communist victory in the mainland represented another pivotal impetus for mass migration. Or mass emigration, leaving the country. Um, The the defeated Nationalist Party, the KMT, fled to Taiwan with about two million soldiers and political and social elites, while a significant portion of Chinese capitalists and financiers also left for Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. Uh, The PRC government still invited remittances during the 1950s and early 60s, but at that time, um, but after that, overseas Chinese were viewed as a counter revolutionary threat during the Cultural Revolution. So it wasn't until the 1980s that there was another major wave of migration and increases in remittances. Uh, There's also been human smuggling by snakeheads based out of Changleu, Fujian, who are repaid through remittances. Okay, so this, this quick and totally oversimplified <laughs> review just shows that the population of 55 million overseas Chinese are, are quite diverse and their remittances are also motivated by different objectives, ranging from profit to family support and uh, philanthropy. In India, there were early voyages by pilgrims and missionaries who spread the word of Buddha in East and Central Asia, as well as long-distance trading networks that spanned the Indian Ocean, Um, then forced labor migration during the colonial era contributed to a major portion of the PIO, the persons of Indian origin component of the contemporary Indian diaspora. Uh, After the British Empire abolished slavery in 1833, nearly 1.5 million Indian laborers were dispatched under indentured conditions to work in various British colonies. Um, And in a parallel to overseas Chinese labor recruiters during this period, better established Indian migrants then supplied the colonies with labor through the Maestrian and Kangani system of labor recruitment. And there are records of remittances to India from various colonial territories as well. One of the enduring legacies of uh, colonial-era indentured labor migration um, is the large portions of Indians in those territories, especially in Mauritius. Um, after World War Two, there we go. Uh, Skilled professionals left in large numbers for the United Kingdom, the U.S., Canada, and Australia in the 1950s and 60s. Um, I'm, just, I'm just pointing to kind of critical junctures here. Following the discovery of oil reserves in the late 1960s and then the spike in oil prices in 1973 to 74, over 90% of South Asian migrants went to the Middle East. And by the end of the 1970s, remittances from workers in the Middle East reached a peak of 77% of China's, I mean India's, excuse me, of India's total receipts. Uh, since then, the proportion of remittances has declined, Um, with the rise of remittances that are coming from the United States rather than from the the Gulf. Uh, And this is due to a shift away from Hawala channels of remittances, um, rising migration of IT specialists to the United States since the mid-1990s, and also the decline in the incentives of NRIs, non-resident Indians, to keep their money in bank deposits. Um, so, increasingly, remittances and NRI deposit withdrawals have also become dominant modes for expatriates that are engaged in Indian real estate and equity markets. The the fact that remittances um, vastly outstrip FDI by Indians not only reflects different preferences and in investment strategies, but also responses to positive incentives for choosing remittances over hawala networks and um, and RBI Reserve Bank of India deposits. So, what has been the developmental impact of the dramatic rise in remittances in India? Well, at the macroeconomic level, NRI deposits uh, provided a really critical source of foreign exchange when India was experiencing a balance of payments crisis in the early 1990s. At the domestic level, the annual volume of remittances outstrips government spending There we go. Outstrips government spending on social services at both the federal and state levels. More, more, the volume of remittances actually outstrips social spending. I can't, I can't overemphasize that. So this is, you know, this is quite significant. But ultimately, I think it makes more sense to look at the local Impact of remittances rather than aggregate national figures. Uh, Migrants originate from particular localities, and their remittances have contextually dependent implications. Uh, The state of Kerala, to take one well-known example, is is known for its um, high performance on human development indicators despite relatively low levels of economic development. And Kerala is also the largest supplier of labor to the Gulf. Um, In Kerala's so-called Gulf Pockets, Uh, there are localities where literally one-fifth of the working population is abroad and remittances contribute about 50% of the local GDP. But even within these so-called Gulf Pockets in Kerala, there's still major differences in the uses and the effects of remittances. And here I'm just going to highlight um, Prema and Curian's study of three Kerala uh, localities. So... Um, In the Hindu village of Chirur in in southern Kerala, remittances from the lower case Eshivas are used for education, uh, which is uh, viewed as a means for upward mobility. And then uh, remittances are also used for various life cycle rituals, such as case mobility and marriage. And in particular, the rise in remittances... Um, has been associated with vastly increased expenditures on weddings, lavish festivals, and also new customs of gift-giving involving gold. Um, Villagers have not invested reminses in developing local businesses. Instead, the migrants um, prefer to generate income through high-interest lending to other churer villages. And because the Eshevas have a traditional of matrilineal inheritance, the remittances have further strengthened the social position of women in Sharur. Kembu is a Christian village in central Kerala, where the local church prioritizes savings and household budgeting and although the uh, the family structure in Kembu is Patrilineal and patriarchal, women are well-educated, and some are employed as teachers and nurses in religious organizations. Uh, Due to their English education, migrants from Kembu are also more likely to be employed in technical, professional, or other white-collar positions in the Gulf. Uh, remittances from Kembu um, migrants are not used for gift-giving, as in Chirur. Instead, um, remittances are used for investment in education, property, and especially bank deposits, which are highly valued as inheritance to the next generation. Because migrant wives, who uh, they're left behind in, while, they're, um, while their spouses are in the Gulf, because the migrant wives manage um, household finances, the status of women in Kembu has, really, has improved. And meanwhile, the Gulf's increased demand for Kembu nurses has furthered bolstered the position of women in this village. Veni is a Muslim-majority district in northern Kerala, and this region has a long history of trading in, with the Middle East. And as a result, the Mapilas in Veni were among the earliest migrants to the Gulf in the 1950s. Uh, most Mapilas migrate, migrate illegally through commercial ships that are operated by Arabs, uh, work in the informal economy, and participate in chitty groups. These are basically rotating Credit and Savings Association groups to finance their return trips. Um, instead of education, remittances in the ma'pilas are mainly spent on consumption, gifts, and charitable causes, such as helping poor families um, build a house or providing dowry for a girls' marriage and buying clothes and few, uh, food for destitute community members. Uh, ma'pilas have also invested heavily in local businesses. Just to give you a taste of some, different, some local variations um, in, in China, <laughs> Dongguang in southern, um, in, in, in Guangdong province, in the coastal, uh, that's the coastal southern province that's closest to Hong Kong, um, opened up early on to, um, to investment, especially by overseas Chinese, um, and has shifted more um, to. Uh, from a, from, it's actually managed to work up the global production ch- chain of being concentrated in labor-intensive to more technology-intensive industries. Um, so this is, this is an area where ethnic Chinese investment has actually put it in, um, in an advantageous position relative to localities such as uh, Suzhou and Chongqing, which focus on attracting multinational, like, non-Chinese ethnic FDI. Uh, the locality of Wenzhou and Zhejiang. This is known for this locality is known for its really early pioneering start on uh, revitalization of the private economy even before it was legal to do so in China. And now Wenzhou has a very vast transnational network of private entrepreneurs uh, literally. I mean in in Milan, in Paris in London, um, you name it. And, um, oh, and Wenzhou has also been more advanced in developing various creative forms of informal finance. And in Wenzhou itself, the the localities, you see the remittances and the investment coming back in the form of local industry and then also a lot of investment in churches as well. Um, a third kind of developmental pattern for remittance use and implications is uh, Changlo in, in Fujian, just south of Fuzhou. Um, in Changlo, what you see are the rural mountainous villages have, have depopulated um, as uh, Changlo is basically China's center for illegal migration um, to, well, various parts of the world. It used to be focused more on the United States. It's gotten harder to, do, um, to go to the United States now. So um, e- uh, snakeheads basically... Smuggle, engage in human smuggling, and um, and there's a vast chain of remittances that are used to finance that. And so what you see back in Changlu is depopulation in the mountains, but then also a a construction boom, and then this circle of kind of indentured uh, labor, local, locally. Okay, so this this raises the issue of whether you know remittances might also inhibit rather than facilitate um, development. As Roger Ballard has observed, in the, in the worst-case scenario, large volumes of migrant remittances can lead to withdrawal from productive activities in favor of short-term opportunities that are available in the remittance-driven service sectors. So there could be a downward spiral of uh, local de-development. In a logic that 's somewhat similar to the resource curse or the Dutch disease, high levels of remittances could distort the incentives for local development. but um, ultimately, determining the the developmental impact of remittances in particular localities requires in depth research. Uh, one thing I, I really want to footnote um, because i, I didn 't want to spend too much time going off on a tangent is that there are domestic remittances associated with the rise of internal rural to urban migration in um, contemporary China, right So even within China itself, there are migration flows um, and there are remittances that are going from the city from the cities back to various rural localities. Yet the economic incentives, the native place networks, the social solidarity underlying internal migration uh, can be very similar in logic to those that are supporting external migration. Um, Indeed, the fact that Taiwan and Hong Kong have been major destinations for mainland migrants suggests a blurring of the domestic-international boundary, given that the two economies function in most ways as independent countries, even while Beijing claims sovereignty over them. And in practical terms, to a village in Anhui, uh, remittances from Shenzhen or Shantou may have more in common with uh, remittances from Hong Kong than from those than those from Nigeria or New Jersey, for example. So whether remittances are allocated towards village temples, elementary schools, family businesses, uh, real estate, um, or imported luxury items is, is very much contextually dependent. Okay, so here are the takeaway points. First, it's, it's important to distinguish between ethnic and uh, non-ethnic foreign direct investment. Uh, it's also important to look at uh, remittances and, and incorporate them into our explanations for development. And the, the analytic implication of all of this is that networks of diasporic capital may be as relevant to economic development as FDI, uh, state economic policy, and external aid. Yet the conventional literature on the political economy of development has generally ignored the connection between individual localities and their diaspora. Um, System-level explanations, such as dependency theory, um, you know, emphasize the structural position of developing economies in the global capitalist economy. And they've pointed to the various negative effects of foreign direct investment and multinational, but regardless of their ethnic origin. Uh, Then the developmental state literature, you know, highlights domestic variables like industrial policy and bureaucratic capacity to pursue particular economic strategies, but doesn't deal at all with migration or ethnic capital. And so it's mainly the sociological literature on network capitalism that's focused explicitly on the origins and the effects of diasporic capital flows. there's a substantial literature on how the network guanxi-based character of East Asian capitalism is superior to the firm-based um, nature of Western capitalist economies. But, because, but these types of studies tend to essentialize Chinese business culture, so it hasn't really resonated with um, more general debates on the political economy of development. Now, having said that, the, the work of anthropologists Aiwa Ong and um, Donald Nonini does avoid such Orientalist tendencies. But again, political economists haven't been informed as much by the literature on um, ethnic transnationalism. There are one or two exceptions, but generally um, that's the case. So going forward, oh, that was what I was talking about just then. Okay, so going forward, the analytic challenge is how to incorporate transnational diasporic relations as a relevant explanatory variable and how to conceptualize their dynamics in a manner that also travels to other contexts without losing touch with the developmental implications at the local level. The logic of ethnic network capital is both contextually specific and mobile, so so we need to resist the temptation to ascribe static causal relations between particular forms of ethnic capital and economic development. And I'm hoping that my initial effort at disaggregating FDI and remittances in the China-India comparison reveal the complexity of this ambition, if nothing else. Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to your questions and comments.
0: Thank you, Professor Sai. Um, so what I might do is take some questions from the audience and, um, and give you a chance to answer them. Um, I'll, I'll just do um, one at a time for sure. now. And- and we'll see how it goes. So if there are any questions, just uh, raise your hand high. and There's
2: a mic that's going around. Thank you, Professor, for the lecture. Uh, In terms of population, you mentioned that both India and China are very heavily populated countries. But as far as I know, there's no birth control policy in India, I mean, in in terms of population. But in China, there's like one choice policy for such almost like 13 years, so I was wondering like uh, in the next generation, the shortage of labor would be such a challenge for China. I want to hear um, what's your opinion or uh, what's your understanding towards the generation and uh, between the, the connection between generation and labor thank you
1: um, that, I mean that isn't a topic that I've looked at explicitly, but um, it is apparent that in certain localities there's a shortage of not just labor but skilled labor in particular. Um, there has been a relaxation of the one-child policy because now those who were born as single children um, if they marry another single child, then they can have more than one. And and really, in terms of enforcement in rural areas, um, ex- there have always been multiple exceptions. People could pay fines. They could not register their um, you know, their girls or, you know, there, there were ways around it. So there, there is a, a particular type of labor shortage in, in certain areas, um, and there's also a sex imbalance, so that's led to a rise in, Um, the commoditization of women and and smuggling of of women, but that's, yeah, that's about the extent of my knowledge of that topic.
0: (laughs) Okay, um, so a question from the second row.
3: Hi, um, thank you
1: again
4: for coming. Uh, In terms of the brain drain and, like, human capital loss, how do you think that should be measured against remittances uh, in regards to development in China and India?
1: That's a, that's an excellent question, and actually, um, actually, Doug, Doug Fuller's done some good work on that particular comparison in terms of brain drain and then brain drain reversal. Um, one thing I think one area, one particular. Um, one way of getting at that issue is that first there was a brain drain, but then th- there's been a return, and then there's been kind of frustration after the return. So it's it's actually you know there, there have been ups and downs um, over the last couple of decades. But I think you know if we took some subnational paired comparisons, look at like Bangalore and Chongqing for example, and just look at the, the people who have um, were trained abroad and then return and reinvested and and try to kind of tease out what are the types of advantages or obstacles that they face. Um, you know that that could be that could be quite helpful it's there's definitely more of a reversal these days it seems but I think I mean it has to be analyzed kind of um, systematically by by particular area or locality rather than just uh, otherwise there's just a lot of anecdotal information out there yeah. um,
0: to the far right
2: um, thank you professor um, is there any comprehensive data on um, the rates of remittances among different diaspora populations? Do Chinese and uh, Indian populations tend to give at the same rates? Do different migrant, you know, different industri- migrants to different industries in different regions tend to give at different rates? Um, tend to be more connected to uh, the region which they originated from. Um, Or is that anecdotal?
1: Yeah, in terms of subnational, you know, disaggregated remittance data, there isn't a comprehensive database of it. The UNDP does track overall aggregate national remittance levels. And so it really varies um, uh, on... You know how how carefully the subnational units whether they be states or provinces are tracking that and it's uneven and i think that's why it really takes kind of going to the locality and figuring out how are they measuring it how you know what what are they counting as a remittance versus something else um so yeah the answer is no i'm not aware of a, a wonderfully comprehensive disaggregated database um a question here um, going back to the
4: one-time policy, I just wondered, um, was there a uh, uh, tendency for families to
3: hold on to a baby child and somehow dispose perhaps of a more infanticide to the well,
5: child, and whether that created an
1: imbalance
5: of the senses later on? Yeah. I have heard yeah. that girls working
3: from India, girls from India and perhaps from Nepal are to become price of Chinese
1: well there definitely is a gender imbalance Um, there are a couple of sources for for the imbalance as I mentioned earlier one one is um, just not registering uh, female births Um, another actually occurs before that which is um, Abortion through um, after identifying the sex of the fetus, uh, you know, through amniocentesis. So some of those, you know, fema- some se- female births are prevented. Um, and then there's also abandonment. So you, the orphanages in China are overwhelmingly dominated by by girls. Right. Question here.
3: Yeah. Hi. Um, it seems to me that the kind of the the question that I have, the, the biggest question that I have, is that it seems like in in, in China, um, ethnic FDI and remittances tend to tend to work very similarly, right? To go into investments into things like you know the 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 next phase of investment and things like that. Whereas we know that in 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 India remittances look very very different in that especially uh, gulf based remittances Mm -hmm. we're talking about unskilled semi-skilled workers who are mostly remitting resources back uh, for their families to have a sort of a a stock of wealth and they they tend not to be entrepreneurial in terms of that but actually kind of establish their bona fides especially in terms of their economic bona fides especially in terms of um, housing and, and and gold, which is mm-hmm. another big mm-hmm. area. So it seems to me, and I, I, I really hesitate to sort of consider an entrepreneurial slash cultural explanation, but it seems like in India, there's just, there's, there isn't, the remittance uh, culture is not a culture of, um, of investment as much as kind of ma- building and maintaining a stock of wealth for self-insurance and things like that, whereas in China it seems like remittance, remittances go for investment purposes. So I was just wondering whether, mm-hmm. is that a fair characterization or and how might we understand it?
1: I, I can see why you would think that if you looked at just um, kind of remittances from the Gulf and from the, yeah, I mean, but I think ultimately there's a difference in Um, in the populations that are remitting and their um, investment and remittance practices. So um, portfolio investment among the the Indian diaspora by, you know, highly educated um, white-collar populations um, is going into the stock market is going into investments, right? Um, remittances that are going towards conspicuous consumption—they're, you know, they're kind of—they're coming more. That's that's more Gulf-driven. Um, in in China, a lot of what's being called investment isn't is, is also speculative, right? <laughs> so, I, I think you, you have to be careful about assuming that investment means that a pos- a net positive, uh, socially positive return is. Is going to occur, um, and as I mentioned earlier, there are, are simply um, more. This, this may be changing a bit um, as more uh, Chinese are going abroad for um, education in white-collar professions and not going into commerce. But traditionally, the Chinese diaspora has been a, a, you know, has been a commercial network, has been commercially motivated, whereas the Indian one hasn't been quite as much. Yeah. <laughs>
4: I just wondered if you could clarify how how broadly you define ethnic FDI. For instance, are you only looking at worker remittances, or when I think about, um, for instance, I know firms that are uh, working in certain African, North African countries, and also Southeast Asian countries. Um, some of these firms are, let's say, three or four degrees removed from state capital. Right. So, in that sense, I mean, how do you? where do you draw the distinction? Where are we supposed to draw the distinction between ethnic FDI and non-ethnic FDI in that sense? Or state, state capital that kind of filters down to, I guess, a, a more micro level of... Um,
1: I mean, yeah, I guess, depends. are you I'm only looking at entre- outward...
4: entrepreneurs and certain firms or firms that are also, I guess, linked to state capital as well?
1: Well, if you're asking specifically about China's kind of outward FDI... Um... I mean that's clearly attracted a lot of attention in recent years. I mean it was um, it reached 75 billion last year, which is a dramatic increase from previous years. But it still only accounts for about 4.4 percent of total global FDI, and of which 71 um, percent uh, of that is within the Asian region. The headlines are grabbing onto you know the much smaller percent that's in Latin America, and also and also Africa. Um, most of the investments there are coming from um, so there, you're right, there's a combination of state-owned enterprises and private investment, but I'm not sure where your question is in terms of um, <laughs> like, are, are you saying that state-owned enterprises should not be considered ethnic or that Well, I guess the, I don't work on this
4: area so I was just wondering how we're supposed to disaggregate or measure ethnic FDI, right, so if, if There's a circular flow going back from Chinese outward investment back. Does that count towards the remittance sort of column. Is oh, that's, well. just of it, capital, that's just round-trip
1: capital. That's just round-trip capital, and that's just kind of domestic capital, you know, going abroad for opportunistic reasons and returning. Um, it's, that's Chinese domestic capital, and that's more a reflection of kind of the restrictions that um, domestic entrepreneurs face in running private businesses than than anything else. So that um, that part of the argument was more to show why China's FDI figures are overstated it's it's including domestic capital.
3: question right here. Thanks. My question is I'm wondering if you've looked into or you are looking into and it's sort of the political impact of these flows. So I can particularly in I'm thinking in, in India where it's a democratic at the national level but there's lots, if it's a federal state. But I imagine you can have the same questions in China as well. I mean, one scenario is that the flows have no effect. Another scenario you can imagine is that it sort of entrenches political elites, and another area is that it sort of breaks down sort of clientelistic relationships because people are less dependent on the, the state, even the local state, and they're more dependent on these external sources of capital for public goods. And I'm just wondering if your research has any looks at all at sort of the dependent variable being sort of
1: political regime. Yeah, but local, local developmental implications and certainly political economy as a... As a unit, yeah, no, that is something that um, that I'm looking at. There's significant local variation, and I mean, in um, in Gu- Gujarat, the remittances uh, have supported the BJP, for example. I mean, that's you know clearly, clearly um, very political. In uh, Wenzhou, um, you know, the local state actually is is kind of captured by the merchants <laughs> themselves. I mean, it's all it's it's very. Um, uh, independent-minded and autonomous, and and the local government protects private capital and is is part of private capital, you know, one in the same, so that the very definition of the state in Wunjo becomes almost almost irrelevant, right? So yes, I am I am looking at that as well. Um, you know, when I first, you know, one one of the inspirations for this project was thinking back at the vast um, population of overseas Chinese who had contributed to the 1911 revolution and. You know, the fact that uh, Sun Yat-sen himself wasn't even in the country when the Qing Dynasty fell and just trying to... I mean, I'm not saying that there's a parallel like that, but just kind of um, that, that historical memory... Um, just seems it seems worth revisiting from time to time to see what, what is going on with the diasporic populations. The the people um, the political scientists who focus explicitly on the political activities of overseas Chinese populations um, have tended to emphasize conflict internal conflict within the Chinese dissident community. But that's a different that's a different issue. Those are po- political dissidents who have overt explicit political ideas already and orientations towards the regime. I think your question in some ways is more, is more interesting to me, which is what happens locally? How does that reorder local hierarchies and um, relations with the local government, if not higher levels of government?
0: Um, so I might actually jump in and take chair's prerogative to ask a question that I think um, relates to that and builds on it, uh, which is about the resource curse possibilities. So at the end, you mentioned that perhaps remittances could be a kind of resource curse if they're used for conspicuous consumption instead of investment, Um, and particularly if they're taking people out of doing productive activities, not just maybe with the money that they're getting, but just with their time. And um, that explanation seemed to um, accord with sort of one broad version of the resource curse, which is sort of an economic version, which is that, um, which is that resources, that wealth that comes from sort of falls into your lap somehow, yeah. can actually displace um, more productive economic activity. So it's sort of an economic resource curse. But there's a political version of the resource curse that I'm, I know you're familiar with, which is that um, when you have money just fall into your lap, um, particularly if that lap is the lap of officials, what it does is it entrenches an authoritarian state mm-hmm. so that the real curse is not that it displaces economic activity directly but mm-hmm. that um, but that funds um, from some sort of resource, whether it's domestic or international, mm-hmm. somehow keep alive a government um, that doesn't do good things for the public, that has an incentive to but it has an incentive to stay in power, a large one, because it continued to control this resource. Mm-hmm. So this idea that when you have a resource, of course, you actually get authoritarian governments. Authoritarian governments produce bad governance, mm-hmm. and that's a bad environment for investment and growth. So I wanted to, um, with that in mind, I wanted to ask if you what, if you thought that, what you thought about that possibility with the remittances. Because another story is that remittances go directly to the public, right? They don't mm-hmm. go through officials. And so in that sense, they bypass the p- potential for a, for a sort of, um, mm-hmm. this sort of authoritarian, this political resource curse, um, and that might actually mean that at the local level you are actually breaking down authoritarian structures that might exist in India um, or in China, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, FDI goes to often goes to officials, or particularly in China, oh, yeah. right? They, they're <laughs> attracting it and they get rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it, if it might entrench an authoritarian. Local state, in the sense that, that I mean, of course, there's an authoritarian national state, but just even more of an authoritarian rule and poor governance, um, because officials have access to benefits and funds that really are not tied to how well they're monitoring and um, governing in the local area.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question, and, and it's one that I've been um, I've been trying to work out in different types of localities in China because there's so many different patterns. There's one where, you know, um, all funds are somehow funneled through the local government and then, um, you know, they take a cut and it's very corrupt. Um, But in other cases, it's really just kind of facilitating what the local government wants to do, you know, invest in locally anyway, and it it tends to be more kind of productive, even even if they're taking a cut. It tends to be more productive in terms of local economic development, um, and I don't—I mean, I—I ha- I have some ideas about what what are what the variables are. That may um, That may determine it one, and this is really just a hypothesis that needs to be uh, tested and worked out in greater depth in the field. but one is when there 's um, a more a more diversity of sources of finance, so not just remittances, not just uh, local taxes, not just foreign direct investment, um, and not just uh, transfers from the center. Um, it's less prone to capture by the local government. Because what you see is uh, some of the poorest localities, um, you see this with poverty alleviation funds, um, where, you know, it's localities where there's, like, nothing else coming in. That the poverty alleviation funds, you know, ironically are, are um, and that's not remittances. <laughs> see, they're, they're not getting remittances either, are most prone uh, to misuse and corruption uh, rather than local reinvestment. It's a good question, though, a really good one, yeah.
6: Thank you very much. Um, yes, you covered a um, very large
3: uh, area.
6: Um, I know it, uh, the FDI is a mixed bag. But overall, how, well, what, how would you assess the, uh, how critical it, it was in the development of the, uh, uh, China and uh, India? Yeah, so overall, how critical was FDI in the economic renaissance of India and China?
1: Oh, um, it's played a much bigger role in China than in India and, um, and, and in China compared to its East Asian li- um I don't want to say libraries, but neighbors is what I meant to say. Um, you know, in, um, in China, uh, it accounts for a much larger percentage of its GDP, a larger percentage of its capital formation, um, like almost 4%, whereas in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, during comparable stages of development, it never even reached 1%. So overall, FDI has played a much bigger role in China's developmental trajectory than, than in almost any other country. Including India.
0: (laughs) Other questions? I thought I saw some hands. Um, Yes, sir.
2: Yeah, uh, to go back to the FDI puzzle, I wonder to which extent the, the still larger incidence of FDI in China even controlling for all the round-trip capital and so on and so forth is just a function of the different sectoral composition of the Chinese economy in the sense that the sectors that tend to be open to FDI, I think in both cases, are manufacturing for the most part. Services are, I think, uh, close to FDI to some important mm-hmm. extent in, uh, both in China and in India. Mm-hmm. And whether uh, the larger share of FDI in the Chinese case is just uh, a function of a much, much larger manufacturing sector relative to the total size of the economy?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, that, I think that's a lot of it. And um, a lot of it can be attributed to structural opportunities in the economy, but then also investment policies, too, that um, it's been closed. <laughs> a, a, lot of, a lot of the services, service sectors face more restriction. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, certainly part of the explanation. I would agree. And a question over
5: here. Uh, the observation that migration and uh, the capital flows should be incorporated into political science expansion growth um creates a thinking in me that uh, the fact that you no know, when you you presented the issue of FDI and uh, the other inflows coming from diaspora, and you know, raising the economies of both India and China, uh, compels me to think that uh, the world needs to review migration issues, and maybe we we'll need like something like our migration body um, to put, you know, uh, policies that can look at the general consensus. Different in you know, states, and they will inform you from later migration policies and stuff, so could that you know uh, I, I believe it's a very, very significant issue that maybe in your arguments as you present like you came up with that you know uh, observation would add some you know value in your book. thank you.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an entire field of demography <laughs> and migration and publications devoted entirely to migration, but they haven't typically been again kind of incorporated into mainstream political economy of development type analyses. So that's this is an initial effort at at bringing that in a little bit so that it's less um, separate as a field of study. Question here.
6: Hi. I found that there are many flaws in your lecture tonight when you 're talking about foreign direct investments as against North ethnic foreign direct investments there 's no such thing in China in the sense that the, the, the joint venture laws in China stipulate that all foreign direct investments must have a Chinese partner and the other factor is that you haven't laid out the post-Mao and the post-Teng Xiaoping era. They represent different, different epochs in China's economic development, which is very important. For example, if you compare Shenzhen, Shenzhen is a pet project of Deng Xiaoping. After the military coup of June 4th by the northern faction, led by the 7th Army from Chile. It would have been better if you were to compare India with Bangladesh. Then you'd be comparing apples like with like. But I find it simply difficult to understand. How can you ever compare India with China? To begin with, India is a federal system, while China is a unified system. And the laws are practically different, and culturally, India has its caste system, and the overseas Indians, I'm from Singapore, I grew up in most of them. So I can tell you that most of the caste, the caste structures in India and the overseas Indians do not have the kind of capital nor business acumen, because they were imported by the British as especially as like slave labor, building roads, electrical appliances, and so on. Whatever money they send back to India will go back to their villages, while the land in India up to today, controlled by the jettyers, the landlords, money lenders. And it's not, it's not for, 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 for industrial development unless we are talking about a city-state like Bangalore,
0: That's a very thoughtful question, I think, pointing to the differences perhaps in the diaspora communities. Um, Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's actually consistent with what I'm trying to show is the, the sources of variation. I mean, I'm responding to this um, impetus out there to con- compare two very large, complex, diverse countries. I mean, that's that's kind of out there. It's kind of the latest cottage industry in, in comparative politics, you know, the comparing the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, and then sometimes South Africa as well, the BRICSA. Um, in my own work, I'm actually... Uh, not compa- not intending to compare both countries in aggregate. Um, more concretely, I'm looking at paired subnational comparisons. So, you know, perhaps it makes more sense to compare Gujarat with Wenzhou, or um, Bangalore with Chongqing uh, um Kerala with Guangdong or Fujian, for example. And and focusing, I under yeah, I mean you're absolutely right that there are vast political differences um, and 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 histories, but but nonetheless, both of them are in a position where they are attracting substantial ex, uh, external finance from, um, from their ethnic populations. And I think it's one way of trying to pinpoint, well, what, what are those variables? And you mentioned a number in the... Thanks.
0: Um, just um, building on some of these different variables that affect yeah. um, how whether FDI is attracted, whether remittances are attracted, and what use they're put to, um, I'm wondering if you might be willing to... Foreshadow a bit the types of policy implications that you hope your work will have. I know you're not done with it, so you're not going to come out with solid policy conclusions. But um, but it seems like a lot of the the variables are, of course, things that can't really be controlled that well. You know, sort of the nature of the diaspora community is you know historically set, um, and um, the the broader political systems of the country are unlikely. Well, or if they change, they won't change because of small policy changes. And um, but the, but on the other hand, there seem to be some aspects of this that are very responsive to policy. You know, so China's policies of welcoming FDI and going out and attracting ethnic um, FDI seem to have paid off. So I'm wondering. Um, oh, but at the same time, that they've also seemed to create some fake, you know, some fake FDI that right. might not have such good economic implications. So, I'm wondering if, if um, you might say a little bit more about what kind of policy implications you think your work might have in terms of the types of policies you'll speak to, and whether you have a hint yet of the sorts of things that might be bad policies or good policies, um, given, given um, the topic and the nature I guess- of your work
1: yeah that's an interesting question. Um, I had been thinking more in terms of analytic explanatory frameworks mm-hmm. rather than policy prescriptions to be honest, but I think it depends on you know evaluating um, the value or the normative direction of a policy depends on from whose perspective <laughs> yes. and and so um from I've studied private entrepreneurs um, for most of my career, and from their perspective, there are a host of policies that make it very restrictive for you know, domestic capital formation um, because of the, uh, the uncommercialized subsidized uh, banking system. I mean, it's, a very, it's still a very bank-centric system. Equity markets are hard to tap, and so it incentivizes round-trip capital and this, this type of deception, um, and that may not necessarily be the most efficient um, model that's out there from the perspective of private entrepreneurship, but from the perspective of the state, from Beijing's perspective, um, from the perspective of regime stability, there is a reason. There's a political reason why um, China's financial system still remains as repressed and unliberalized as it is, and it has to do with the state sector um, and the political interests that are embedded there. And so, if if Beijing's cent- goal is more more political survival and stability. Um, rather than efficiency, you know, I, I think that's always the issue when, when we're talking about policy implications. And then, of course, I'm coming from um, you know, the United States where, and, and being with Johns Hopkins being right next to Washington, D.C., <laughs> from their perspective, it's always about, you know, what's better for, the, for Sino-U.S. relations and with the, with, um, to benefit the United States. So, so I'm still thinking about that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't expect to be uh, employed by any particular entity to, <laughs> to provide um, policy policy prescriptions. But I hope this project will start pointing to, you know, highlighting, like, okay, the, fa- the fact that, you know, private enterprises are discriminated against relative to foreign ones and relative to state ones, I mean, that has direct implications for the behavior of private entrepreneurs, that sort of thing. I mean, I can hi- highlight some of those. <laughs>
0: Um, I'd love to take one or two more questions if we have um, questions still in the audience.
2: Thanks. Uh, yeah, you'd been alluding that you might want to uh, expand the conceptual framework that you're developing to the broader political economy of development, and perhaps come up with uh, or contribute to a new paradigm that goes beyond the uh, existing. Uh, big models we have about uh, dependency and the developmental state and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm wondering whether you're thinking about expanding some of the the hypothesis or some of the results tentatively to, to other cases whether you're looking at whatever what remittances might have done to cases like Ireland that turned into a Celtic tiger and things like that, or whether it's really just a model <laughs> applicable to those two very large and just in themselves very important cases.
1: Well, ultimately, I would, I would love to be able to come up with a framework that's sufficiently... Uh, compelling that it, it felt like it could travel to other contexts. Um, at this point, I'm at the process of kind of hypothesis generation and <laughs> testing, so it's kind of premature for that. But yes, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that you know uh, there are definitely parts of the world where there's more migration than others, um, populations with larger diasporas than others, and I think it's I think it's relevant to to think about how they relate to um, Domestic development, if at all, and if not, why not? I mean, I think that's an interesting question too.
0: Well, thank you. This was incredibly revealing for me. I found out um, facts that had not been <laughs> that had not been clear to me before about um, where, what the amount of FDI is and um, where and remittances. Um, and this takes a lot of research, right? It's not obvious to people, which is why it hasn't happened before, right? To really trace through where things are going and how much is fake, and etc. how much is looping back, and, um, and also what the particular impact is in local places. Um, and the theoretical implications that you're pointing to are big. They're big ones for thinking about how development happens in the world and where these two countries in particular are going. Um, so I'm really excited to hear more. And once again, um, I'm, it's completely, as I expected, incredibly empirical and well-thought-out research, as well as extremely theoretical and important for the world. So thank you for coming.
1: Thank you. (laughs) You've given me much to think about as this project continues, so I appreciate it. Thanks.